1: ho ho ho, hello and welcome back to Bah Humbug, the Christmas movies podcast that would quite like to be an octopus in a Christmas pageant. I'm your host Helen O'Hara and today I am doing, well we're doing two things today. We're doing a little bit of a celebration of the Christmas movies of 2003 but we're also in particular picking one of those Christmas movies out that you may not have heard of and may not be as familiar with as the others. So let me just set this up for you a bit. First of all 2003 was an immense year for Christmas movies. It was huge. We got Elf. We got Love Actually. In the States, they got Bad Santa. We had to wait till the following year, but we're still counting it as a 2003 Christmas movie. But also out that year, and also exceptionally good, is a film called Tokyo Godfathers, which is an anime story about essentially a foundling baby on Christmas Eve, who gets picked up by three perhaps unlikely godfathers and uh, crazy adventures ensue. It's brilliant, but I have to confess, I'd never heard of it until this year. To my shame, to my discredit. Thankfully, there were two people who were uh, there to, to, to sing its praises and to remind us all that it exists. So please join me in welcoming to the podcast, Ghibliotech hosts and authors, Michael Leader. Hello, Michael.
2: Hi, Helen. Pleasure to be here.
1: Hello, and Jake Cunningham. How are you doing?
0: I'm all right, Helen. How are you?
1: I'm very well. I'm not very well. I've got a bit of a cold, but otherwise I'm very well. I'm very excited to talk about this film because like I say, I was completely in the dark. I had no idea that it existed. And I've just sat down and watched it a couple of times this week. And my God, it's brilliant. Where has it been all my life?
0: Well, you sound a lot like me uh, from a few <laughs> years ago, because I like for the for those unfamiliar, which I'm sure is most people, um, Michael and I we do a project called Ghibliotech, and um, that began with out of the fact that I don't know anything about anime or Studio Ghibli, and so five and a half years ago we started this project where Michael would show me all of the Studio Ghibli films, and I'd watch them for the first time and react, and it was brilliant. And then after we ran out of Ghibli films, we had to find another filmmaker. Uh, or of studio to delve into the works of and Michael selected Satoshi Khan and so I went in again, not knowing anything into Tokyo Godfathers and I've felt very much like you are feeling right now and just discovering this Christmas gem and the kind of thing that you watch it once and you think, God, I feel like I'm gonna be watching this every year into infinity now.
2: Yeah, we, when we started, we, we had Studio Ghibli as our first sort of mountain to climb and that's sort of inf- informed everything we've done since where it's maybe a studio or a filmmaker within Japanese animation or animation at large where maybe there's one film or a couple of titles that are approaching household name status, certainly among film fans. and but then also we wanted to have a filmmaker who had a discrete filmography that told a story where you could see the developing of a vision or a career. And once you get beyond Hayao Miyazaki at Studio Ghibli and his films, there really are only a few other big names of a certain stature. And Satoshi Kon is really one of them. And he has films like Perfect Blue and Paprika, which did break through and are known by yeah. film fans outside of the sort of uh, dark corners of anime fandom that we we frequent. But Tokyo Godfathers is the one, probably out of his filmography, there are one or two that are a little less uh, well-known. And Tokyo Godfathers is the one, and probably because his films didn't get theatrical releases mm. um, within his lifetime, within his career. He passed away in 2010, but they, they have been... Gaining and garnering a following over the years, and it's something we've noticed. Well, certainly I've noticed in the time that I've loved this film. It's become now, if there's ever a listicle, as the like there tends to be at this time of year, of alternative Christmas favourites. This is always quite high up there. If you're bored of perhaps the other films that were released in two thousand and three, well, I think it's, this one.
0: It's almost bordering into favourites, just mm-hmm. not alternative anymore since. Uh, G Kids the American distributor they have made a 4k remaster of Tokyo Godfathers they've got a a dub cast in a new dub cast as well in the last few years it went on to Netflix and now there are screenings of Tokyo Godfathers in in cinemas and not just one or two there are lots of screenings happening in this film and it has kind of just in the last few years even since the pandemic has really caught on um and and for good reason really.
1: Now I should say at the time we're recording this it's not on Netflix in the UK that I was able to find. Um so I got I just got hold of a uh, well a DVD because the Blu-ray would have taken too long to come and I mm-hmm. I'm very impatient. Um but it sounds like I should also get the Blu-ray actually <laughs> from what you're <laughs> saying because that sounds amazing but um but also one of the reasons we're talking about it is you guys are going to host a screening, right? So if anybody out there is in or near London on December 14th, you're going to have a screening of this at the BFI. So it's it's getting some proper attention now, it feels yeah, like. Actually, it's getting yeah,
0: I I should, I should retract what I just said and say there are no other screenings of this film. <laughs> uh, there is only one screening and that's on the 14th of December. No, nowhere else. Yeah.
2: Well, we, we have the, the ace of our sleeve in that it's a screening at the BFI IMAX, the biggest screen oh. in the country. So even while, while there may be several other opportunities to see it, there are screenings in Manchester as well. The Manchester Animation Festival are doing a screening there. Um, we are showing it bigger than anyone else, <laughs> um, which which is great to see, really. And it's something, a project that we've had ticking along in the background this year, um, Satoshi Kon, if he had lived, would have been 60 this year. And we've oh, shown wow. all of his features on the big screen. And we had to save this one till last because, of course, it's a of relevance in December rather than Absolutely. in July or August.
1: He died horrifyingly young, 46, which, mm. you know, many animators are barely making their first film at that point as director. So it's, it's, you know, it's testament to his talent that he had made as many as he had, I guess. But... Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a shame to think what else might have might else what else might have come, you know?
2: Absolutely. But the films he did make, he made four films and one TV series. They were very prescient. They were very influential, mm-hmm. impactful within animation and outside of animation. And it seems that every twelve months or so, there's a new hit film from some stylish visionary who points to him and says, "Yeah, yeah we were inspired by that guy." So his mm-hmm. films are always relevant, I think.
1: Yeah. Well, this one in particular, because. Um, And I'm trying not to speak too much, mostly because I'm losing my voice, but also because you guys are the experts here. But um, it it feels like this feels kind of ahead of its time. I mean, if you compare it to the already wildly dated politics of Love Actually, um, which, you know, essentially Richard Curtis has more or less done a mea culpa for... um, uh, in, in a conversation I think with his daughter last year um, who challenged him on all the women being dreadful in that film. But this one feels like it's it could have been made yesterday. It feels like, you know, some right-wing politician out there is going to accuse at any minute of being woke. A, a, a very, you know... Representative, a very broad, if you like, trio. If that makes sense, if you can have a broad trio, but you have, you know, a guy who is uh, struggling with alcoholism and maybe gambling addiction. You have Hannah, who I think, you know, was refers to herself in the in the version I saw as queer. I think we would now probably say a trans woman, and this runaway teen with them as well. So these are the three unlikely unhoused kind of heroes of this film who are trying to i guess make a kind of christmas wish come true it's uh, i'm not quite sure how to how I to mean, describe um, it
0: j- imagine trying to pitch that in the west in 2003 <laughs> considering particularly within the animated form like, imagine so biggest animated film in 2003 would have been finding nemo like <laughs> it, it's amazing like that when you just think this is a this is a properly grown up drama that's being told in animation that actually is Full of, in a weird way, Christmas spirit. Like, it is like there is, you know, there's joy, there's forgiveness, there's tragedy, there's there's bright lights. There's definitely a kind of Santa Claus type character. Like it's got there's
1: coming back together with your family and and reconnecting with people, no matter what you know, bad blood there might have been between you in the past. There's trying to get over that as part of the Christmas spirit. It's interesting to me as well. I've I've talked on this podcast before about the 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 very basic types of Christmas movie, right? There's there's the career person goes to small town and rediscovers meaning of Christmas. There's the member of Santa's family or circle comes to career person and teaches them meaning of Christmas. And there's three ghosts teach somebody meaning of Christmas. Those are essentially the the models. And and here, on one hand, it's kind of upended because you've got the trio. Who are being taught, in some ways, the meaning of Christmas, if you like, or just being put back in touch with their their warmer selves. But also, I kind of do feel like it's it's closest to the member of Santa's family model of Christmas movie.
0: Is that fair? Well, and what well, who are you who are you proposing is the are they the members of the family or the, is the baby? No,
1: I'm I'm proposing the baby is essentially mm. the kind of catalyst, and it's it's actually. When I say member of Sanders family, I'm including angels there, so sort of the okay. It's a Wonderful Life model also is covered. But um but yeah, it, it is a sort of like Deus
0: Ex cradle. Well, that, yeah, yeah. I mean it's 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 the first shot of the film, I think, is the baby's face and it's part of is a baby's face, and then that's part of a nativity scene at a church service. It's very Christian as well, which considering it's Japanese is quite surprising as well. Um, yeah, it's like Initially, you think it's, oh, this is so different. This is so wild. And then, in a way, there's a kind of, not a rags to riches, but there is that kind of street urchin Dickensian quality to the whole thing as well. And like this, these kind of episodic hijinks that they get into, and all of these like larger than life characters along the way. And so it's got this lovely, brisk pace that does feel like this. It's got this crazy, what was that Seth Rogen thing? Uh, The Night, the the Night. The, the, lo- night,
1: the night before? Night be- yeah, in a way. Yeah. You can see yeah.
0: links to something like that.
2: I'd almost see it as a flip of the Home Alone films seen from the point of view of the the bird lady or the man with the shovel, uh, right. in, mm-hmm. in a way, because it has that sense of Christmas being a time where little moments of serendipity or little magic happenstances happen. And that's mm-hmm. what the opening... You know, gambit of the film is, is that there is this literal baby left in a pile of rubbish. And it's up to these three unhoused people to deal with it. And it's a cross town caper as well. So it's not a million miles away from something like Love Actually, in the sense that it tries to almost get the spirit of an entire city in this time. And it's technically a Twixtmas film. There aren't, Are there many Twixtmas mm-hmm. films that you've covered on the podcast, Helen? Because there's,
1: there's a few. There's actually going to be another one this year because uh, I would say The Holdovers is also a Twixtmas film. <laughs> yes, that was Jake and I both doing mad thumbs up to the screen because it's the whole so universe good. is great, spoiler. But um, we'll be talking about that later because it's not out until January for some obscure reason. But anyway, that's a rant for another time. Uh, yes, so Twixmas Films, you're correct. There aren't that many of them. I would maybe say Amil Amin's Boxing Day from a couple of years mm-hmm. ago, which obviously goes to Boxing Day at least. Um but, but often Christmas is, is itself treated as almost a deadline, mm-hmm, uh, whereas mm-hmm. Christmas Eve here is kind of the kickoff point rather than the finale.
2: Yeah, and I suppose what makes this difference as well is that the inspiration or the influence it's drawing is from a story uh, that was was turned into a film called The Three, um, the Three Godfathers that was a, a Western uh, made into a film in the 1940s. So it's not necessarily drawing from a Christmas tradition, uh, let alone a cultural tradition mm-hmm. that's similar to Hollywood or British or English language um, Christmas films. So it's really... A, a rare film in that regard. And as, as Jake said, opening on a rendition of Silent Night in the anime form is still so strange because we don't see that sort of spirituality or that sort of tradition on screen. And it's something that Toshi Kon's really good at. He was always good at having a very personal, personal vision in terms of his range of references that he was pulling from. He'd be having a film that was very psychological or, um, Dreamlike and nightmare. She'll have a film that's a salute to a century of Japanese cinema. Millennium actress. The film he made before this, and now this one is a relatively straight film in terms of his, um, you know, the 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 form of the film. It's quite straightforward, but it's still unique within its genre.
1: And it's a film. I'm I'm always interested to to see, especially anime. Maybe unfairly because I I'm not as expert on it. I, I don't know. You know, all of the 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 breadth of anime, but um, to see something that is so much more grounded than maybe that the image in our heads we have when someone says Japanese animation or something else, you know, you're you're sort of expecting blue hair and pink hair and you know dragons and whatever else, and this is, I mean, in a lot of a lot of scenes in this movie could absolutely be shot in live action. So the question is, why is it animated? And I th- I think it absolutely should be, and it absolutely is, it has to be as it turns out. But it's it's interesting to me that animation feels like the right medium for this story, even though it is so grounded and so realistic for most of the time.
2: Well, I think our stock answer when someone asks why is this in animation is that the artists making them excel within that art form. And that is that the... Literally, the pen they're using rather than it being a camera pen that Martin Scorsese uses in his auteur theory. Um, But also, I suppose Satoshi Kon, just to tell a bit about sort of his biography, he was an artist. He was a manga artist at school. He started animating at college. He moved to Tokyo from Hokkaido, so from relatively small town, Japan to the biggest city in the world, and is clearly in love with that massive network of people and experiences that is Tokyo. And to some extent, you can't capture that and the magic of the of the metropolis mm. in live action in the same way. And while we say this is grounded, you do watch this, and the character animation in this is still quite cartoony. Yeah. I don't mean that in a in a bad way. His, his films often are the other way around, whereas everything around the characters is um, all shifting timelines and perspective, are we in dream or reality? This one, the reality is quite grounded, but the characters are quite outsized and quite... I don't say caricatured. They're very full of life and personality in a way that if you did have live-action actors playing these roles, it would be quite pantomimic maybe at times. Yeah,
1: particularly some of, I'm thinking some of the shots of Hannah's face in particular would be, they would be difficult to do in in live-action without looking like Nicolas Cage at his most extreme.
2: Exactly. And, and some of the gags are great as well. There's one scene where she's in the taxi cab and she's sort of um, flirting with the guy mm-hmm. and saying, I, I, I love a guy who will just say, oh, whatever, and let me get out of the cab when I can't afford my fare. And there's that thing where for one or two frames, the face of Hannah turns into the face of the taxi cab driver. And yeah. the, the tricks you can only really do in animation yeah, um, if you want to just break reality for a split second to make a gag.
1: It, is a, it was a very good scene that I remember, I remember uh, laughing quite hard at that one. Um, and I think there are there are some kind of action beats at the end as well, which would be very tricky to do well um, in uh, in live action as as well as that. I'm interested in how, how you what you think of this. How does it compare to some of the kind of Christmassy tropes we get in the West? I mean, for example, I don't know enough about you know Tokyo weather to say if it often snows there at this time of year. Because I'm thinking about, the, you know, some of the other films that came out in this year, obviously, you know, Elf, Love Actually, Bad Santa, all have White Christmases, Weather Be Damned. Um, is it a little bit the same here? Or are we slightly pushing reality in that sense?
0: Well, it, it might not land as precisely as sticking around from the whole of Christmas Day to New Year's Day. But we have been in Tokyo at the end of November, start of December before and it's certainly got chilly i mean when we were okay. when we were there last although we we were there in october and did get to wear shorts which was a bit bananas but climate wise you, you it can happen but you've got areas of the country that are for skiing and then areas of the country that are for surfing um so it is slightly more extreme compared to the uk in that respect mm. it is surprising that it does that kind of Perfect glistening snowfall throughout when we've just been talking about how much of a realist f- film it is in in points and it only reserving the outlandish stuff for the characters. But sometimes with a Christmas film, you just have to assume that everything's going to be covered in snow and you accept that and that's fine.
1: And what about its level of Christmassiness? This is something I always often talk about in this podcast. You know, if if we're saying that, I don't know, Muppet Christmas Carol is maximum christmasiness, mm-hmm. right? That has the trees, it has the turkey, it has the muppets. I mean, 10 out of 10, no notes. Like what th- this one I feel like is is calibrated a little lower on the scale. This is almost something that you could watch to get you into the christmas spirit maybe, you know, rather than being the kind of grand finale on christmas
0: eve. Well, it's funny you mentioned that Helen, so this was Uh, my, my, my my wife's first festive film of the season. So this is recorded on the, well, we watched it on the 22nd of November. So I think ideal timing for something to lure you in like this, like not bashing you on the head with the festivities. Um, And I think, I think because of the setting you are, you are cold, you're out on the street, you're not necessarily in the glow of that department store Christmas tree present situation. But I do think there are moments where it's sudden you do feel that Mm. festivity. And a scene that I'd actually forgotten about and I thought was lovely and warm and just a a real surprise is a moment where one of the characters, there is a strange gangster action film beat that occurs about halfway through the film where people pull a gun at a wedding, and it all gets gets a bit mad. But one of the characters and the baby ends up in this small room with another character. and um they don't speak the same language. And you enter this room and the our our hero character is just having a hot drink and is perched on the edge of a chair, and then you suddenly spot that the two babies, her baby and the other character's baby have been tucked up into a little single bed in the corner. And the lighting is or the colouring has changed from that kind of grey and blue that we've been sat in in the outside because that's where most of the film takes place all of a sudden we're in reds and oranges and we've got a bed and a carpet and that feels like an incredibly cozy moment and a very festive mm-hmm. moment even though there's not i think there's just a tiny little fake christmas tree on the floor and that's about the extent of it so it's giving off the mood if not all the iconography
2: yeah and, and the theme of finding your family Um, running all the way through it is something that it is a time of year where many people will be thinking of seeing their family for the first time in a long while or the first time every year certain members of their extended family and all three of those characters while they have their found family of the three of them living on the streets they all then have their moments where they revisit or re-experience that family that they had lost or they'd moved away from so that's definitely an element that if you wanted to if you're thinking of christmassy films and that sense of if you watch a bunch of them together those shared themes that build towards ultimate christmas where you peek at christmas carol okay. um that definitely will factor into that if you watch it so maybe not the pinnacle because also i think that twixtmas thing that i mentioned means that it doesn't have that big culmination does it of a yeah. christmasy day christmasy vibe
0: the holiday never does that does it in it, it's never actually doesn't have christmas yeah. day it does everything around it up to new year's which is so it's true. very weird another
1: cr- Twixmas. Classic, if you will. Yeah, it's a good point. And also, like, this does end on a very quiet moment, I thought, you know, or well, actually, it, it's just about to get loud. You sense it's about to get loud <laughs> mm-hmm. any second, but it ends on this very um, simple scene with the three godfathers or god people as they now are kind of together. And it's it's um it's kind of a contrast to some of that cartooniness, to some of those bigger beats, to some of that kind of scale that the film does have along this kind of picaresque journey to get the baby to a place of safety. Cause there is also danger in this film. There is also cruelty and darkness and anger, which I also think is a is a key component actually of many of the best Christmas movies. It's a wonderful life, of course, being the prime example. That is Two hours of being depressed, which allows you to experience fully the five minutes at the end of utter joy, I think. And I think there's a little bit of similarity here.
0: Yeah, what I really like about the ending, to let's give it a slight Christmas twang, it doesn't put a ribbon on it. it like, everyone's resolution, you're kind of given an idea of what that resolution might be, but you're not told and given that American Graffiti ending, where the text comes up and everyone's explained what everyone did for the rest of their lives. You kind of just know that there is. You get given kind of ten percent of a resolution that there is something here. And then what I love about the way that the film ends is it gives you that slight angle of positivity, but still in the area of vagueness that there is the chance of the chance of hope, redemption, whatever it might be. But then you zoom out from the final setting, and for the end credits. All of the buildings of Tokyo start dancing, (laughs) and I do feel like that's Satoshi Kon just kind of underlining that message to be like, you might not know what happens, but it's good, you know, because look, the city's dancing.
1: I thought that was very—is it Charles Fleischer, the sort of 1930s squash and stretch animation style? That was just magic, magic way to end a film.
2: And it does link in with his other works after this as well. Um, he made the TV series Paranoia Agents after that, which is a much darker view of life in Tokyo. And then he made Paprika, which also has the big city life as a as a key component. And it is one of those many keys to unlocking his whole career. These themes that um, recur is the the. the the city as a character, which is a bit of a cliche to say it, but often in that very specific case, the city does become a character because it's part of its own little dance sequence.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Quite literally justifying the uh, thing. I think the city is a character, absolutely, in this. And, and you know, again, I haven't been to Tokyo, but I've obviously wanted to, read about it, watched all the movies about it and things like this, and this sense of very different... Um, uh, parts of town that they have to journey through it does give you a sense of a kind of an epic picaresque journey and not just you know some people walking down the street to the nearest I don't know shelter or something and handing over the baby there's there's a lot more going on here than just um what's our immediate source of milk in a blanket you know it's 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 it there are competing aims here at work I guess yeah
0: and I, I love that all the kind of establishing Tokyoisms of it are kind of Squashed away or hidden in the background or behind a tree or like partway behind a building, like the Tokyo Tower, I think is a great example where it's not like we've got an aerial shot. Which of course it's animation. You could do. You could just say, "And now we are near the Tokyo Tower," but it's it's trapped behind some skyscrapers and viewed from a park or whatever. So it's doing that great thing of feeling like we are in the city, but not necessarily giving us that most glamorous version of it or a tourist angle of it. It is how it might be viewed as you are walking around it. And these things that you recognise do just peer and emerge from around the corner.
1: So there's almost, there's an instant contrast with Elf, which is very much <laughs> the the dream view of New York, I feel like. Um, and I feel like Love Actually tries to do what you're talking about in the sense that there are normal person houses occasionally in Love Actually. But so much of it takes place in really nice houses that I feel like it's not giving us the real London. So, yeah, I can't I can't credit it with the same with <laughs> the same energy. I feel like Bad Santa. Out of the other films this year, I feel like Bad Santa probably shares the most DNA with this, which is to share say it shares about five percent DNA with this, like no more than that. But in the sense of you know an ending that maybe gives you hope, but not a firm conclusion. You know, an edge of. I don't think this this film is cynical actually at all, but an edge of maybe being a slight outsider on Christmas and not being quite, you know, you're not sort of Dickie Attenborough and Miracle on 34th Street fully bought into it. So it's, it's a little bit more removed maybe from the traditional Christmas movie in that sense.
0: It's probably got the same blood alcohol content. You
1: know what? You're absolutely right. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Hello, I'm Martin. I'm Sam. And every week we get together on our podcast Song by Song to discuss the music of Tom Waits. Uh, Waits is a writer, musician, and performer. Uh, you might know him from his four decades of songs like uh, What's He Building in There? Downtown Train? Martha? Rain Dogs? Or you might have seen him in films like Dracula, uh, The Fisher King, The mm. Ballad of Buster Scruggs, or if you made it that far, Licorice Pizza. We're joined every week by guests from various backgrounds and disciplines and together we take a close listen to his work, analysing the topics and tones he uses in his music and honestly engaging with one of the most interesting voices of his generation. Listen to our latest season or dive into our back catalogue by visiting songbysongpodcast.com or search for Song by Song in your podcatcher of choice.
1: We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember, hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the
2: end... What will I become?
1: Senwa Saga. Hellblade
0: 2.
2: Play it now with Game Pass. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. Alda. must not take yourself too seriously and... Six one, since that matters, and what do I even say other than Hey <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to download the new bumble now,
0: uh, so Mike Michael, were you watching Bad Santa for the first time for this?
2: I watched it for the first time the other day, um I don't know why i'd never watched it I'd, i went back on my live journal oh dear uh back to 2003 to see what i was actually doing when i was 16 and i saw probably 20 years to the day i saw love actually uh, as we record but i didn't see bad santa or elf and i guess probably the staggered release didn't help that and it's strange because i was a bit i was a fan of terry zwigoff i'd loved ghost world his previous film and as an adult have, uh, have got hold of his um crumb documentary and i love that and i don't know why i never watched bad santa and it is quite um it's a it's definitely a, a relic of its era in, the, in a similar <laughs> way to how love actually is uh the shock value aspect of it is definitely what would shock somebody in 2005 and now sensitivities have changed <laughs> but the shared dna is interesting because yes as you say there is a thread through Christmas movies of perhaps the unlikely hero or the unlikely protagonist having their moment to shine or their moments of redemption. And that's definitely heavily played in Bad Santa. And then the innocence of a child being that Mm -hmm. motivating factor for them to change their ways or amend their ways. Um, I wouldn't say that Bad Santa is going into rotation for me after watching it (laughs) this time, as much as I um, think that Billy Bob Thornton and generally the cast Mm. give a really good fist of it. It's, um, it's an interesting one. I, I read lots of oral histories and everything about it afterwards, and it seems that that was a film that was changed in the edit and taken away from Terry's Terry Zwigoff. Mm. Um And very the, the version we have to see is different from the version as written or as intended, which is always fascinating to read about, perhaps sometimes more than watching the film. But um, the one I'm interested to hear about from both of you is Elf, because I've never seen Elf. I'm very good at keeping films as my rainy day films, And maybe I'll watch that with my kids someday, but I've never seen Elf.
1: Oh my, you are in for such a treat. There is a little bit of animation in Elf, by the way, there's a little bit of beautiful stop motion kind of uh, harking back to, I think it's actually harking back to that um, classic American Rudolph, isn't it Rudolph the red Nose Reindeer? Is it called Rudolph the red Nose Reindeer? But it's about Rudolph, but it's that kind of stop motion animation just to bring the North Pole to life. But it is, um, I think it's the I think it's head and shoulders the best of those three, of the of the Western Christmas movies of t- 2003. Um, I would now put this one, I would now put Tokyo Godfather up. Uh, Godfather's absolutely up next to it in terms of the best Christmas movies of 2003. But um, but yeah, I think Elf has aged much better. What do you think, Jake? Have you gone back to it recently?
0: Um, When it's on TV I've seen it like since then So every year then yes Uh, But I I don't know I've probably I've watched it in the last five years I'm going to say maybe longer I don't like it No (laughs) But I I think I've grown apart from Will Ferrell as a performer and he's doing big Will Ferrell in this
1: It's very big Will Ferrell energy in that movie yes
0: I think I think I can see the appeal, and I, I found it appealing. And it's funny where it's not like I watched it and thought oh, that's not for me. I, I did enjoy Elf, and um, yeah, I, I I can't bear him. I can't bear <laughs> the Zoe Deschanel is so irritating. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I do like the animation, and I like the there's lots of kind of fun, forced perspective trickery in Mm -hmm. the North Pole stuff. Yes. Like, you know, you you know, your your Gandalf and Frodo on the cart, all of that fun, making him look like a big, a big boy in a small world. All of that's really good. Um, But... It's the
1: real world stuff that you object to, is it?
0: Yes. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) But Uh, if I'm going to watch a New York Christmas film, I'm going to watch Home Alone 2. Interesting.
2: I'm not going to argue with that. You pretty much knocked all of the cast members on the head there, but I'm intrigued because not to be such a, uh, classic stereotypical film nerd. Um, I'm interested in James Caan in this because when he, you know, that's always mentioned mm-hmm. as one of his late films that broke through and people of younger generations associate him with Elf more than, than necessarily oh, yeah. the Godfather. So how is he in this?
1: I think he's very good. But then I like the performances generally in this movie. And and I feel like Will Ferrell's particular brand of craziness is well is beautifully calibrated for that character. Who is meant to be a bit much? So the idea is he's obviously you, you know the premise he's been mm. raised at the North Pole by other elves. He thinks he is an elf until it is pointed out to him that he is twice the size of anyone else, and that he's actually a human. And he's sent off in search of his, or he sets off in in search of his real dad, who is James Cann's character. But um, but I think that that Cann's edge of kind of cynicism and. You know, streetwise sort of energy. Even though he's meant to be a book editor, which is not usually <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> the, uh, the, the 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 sort of terminology you use about book editors, streetwise. But anyway, uh, it's a lovely contrast with Will Ferrell's kind of manic, sugar fueled elf
0: antics. Who's the who's the kind of father figure on the North Pole? It's, it's not Bradley Whitford, but it's like Bradley Whitford, and whose name I've forgotten. It's like a well, character actor face. Ed is, Asner
1: is the is Santa. You don't mean Santa? No, though. I you don't mean Santa.
0: Should, Bob
2: Newhart? is that who you're thinking you of? Yeah, it
0: must be. I remember Ed enjoying is, him.
1: He's great. He's yeah. very deadpan, very kind of holding back, and he's wonderful in it. Again, one of those late, you know, late roles for him that I think most of the younger generation—that's now their reference mm. for his entire career, <laughs> because it has kind of swallowed all before it, hasn't it? But no, I, I just think it's a very good film. There you go. I, uh, uh, I'm going to stand up for it.
0: Maybe, maybe I'll come back around. And then maybe <laughs> I've had, maybe I had the formative, I don't like this viewing. And now I need to have the formative, actually, no, you're just being a cynical, nasty man. <laughs> and you need to regain your Christmas spirit by singing a song in the park that will create yeah. enough Christmas spirit for a sleigh to fly above new york
2: you're not usually the cynical one of the two of us jake this is very surprising that you've you've come out at so anti i'm sorry uh, yeah sentiment. i mean
0: in my like site i did, did the sight and sound best films ever made and i put it's it's wonderful life in there like, i'm a i'm a big softy great movie yeah one of the 10 best ever made <laughs> yeah i'm not
1: gonna lie. I, I hate i hate doing best ofs they're they're my nemesis They're such a big part of being a film journalist and I hate them. (laughs) Anyway, that's just slightly off topic. Let's talk about Love Actually just for a minute because, um, look, it gets a very bad rap. And I mean, intellectually, deservedly (laughs) so. Uh, I do have affection for it though. There are so many good bits that I end up kind of trying to blank my mind of all the bad bits. Because, I mean, Emma Thompson alone, fantastic. I think the little... um, Silly Rowan Atkinson bits are very fun. I think there are loads of tiny moments of greatness. So much of what Laura Linney does in it is great, apart from that final stupid decision to stay on the phone to her brother. Um, You know, there's so many good bits. It's just maybe overall getting a lot more sh- shit nowadays frankly than it used to. I,
2: I think I think it's you know rightly getting a lot of shit as a, mm-hmm. as a, a, as times change. it was uh, when I was 16 and I watched it I was very into it um perhaps not five star into it, but I loved the ambition of it and it's a sort of ambition we very rarely have in the British film industry to have a massive cast of this kind mm-hmm. outside of a Paddington Harry Potter. Second World War ensemble type of genre. It's very rare to have all these people playing real people in a contemporary setting. And it, there's a snapshot of of a, of a certain age of cast, all the way from Alan Rickman, Hugh Grant, Keira Knightley, gosh, Colin Firth, Andrew Lincoln. You know, you just keep going. They're all, all bangers. Um, and also, similarly, that sense of the city symphony, the idea of a film that can try and embrace admittedly in this case only richard curtis's uh, relatively limited view of what london is but trying to embrace a whole city and it's one of the few films for me in that sense of the christmas movie that gets a sense of the the media hubbub of the five or six weeks before Christmas. Mm. How it's not just you and your family and going to the shops, it's also the radio, it's the telly, it's Christmas specials, it's talent shows, it's Ant Deck, it's all the Christmas number one. It actually tries to factor in so much of the cultural traditions of Christmas into the film uh, in, an, in a way that is very, you know, storytelling-wise, very ambitious. You know, we, we know that even though this film is... Incredibly long; it could have been longer. He had episodes that he had to cut out to keep it even two two plus hours long. But I I do appreciate that aspect. We don't have; I can't think of any British films since, uh, outside of the Cur- the Curtis verse, that try to not only amass such a good cast but also tell a story on a scale like this. And so I guess it, we even within. Christmas movies, we point to the holiday because that does a similar thing in terms of its scale, but it's also its cast. So, but it really
1: only sort of you know five or six star star names in that cast yeah. uh, at most, and that's if you include, you know, her ex boyfriend and so on. Mm-hmm. So, um, it it I think that yeah, you're right. Love actually is on a different different kind of scale. I think the the closest you get is all those American films that tried to do the same for various lesser holidays, you know, Mother's Day and Valentine's Day and. I don't know, Arbor Day and Labour Day or whatever else they did. Um,
2: I, I recently had to check myself because I thought Thanksgiving, when I saw that on the release calendar, was going to be that. But No, it's a horror movie set at Thanksgiving. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, which I'm looking forward to seeing, actually. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, we're actually recording this on Thanksgiving. So belated happy Thanksgiving to any American listeners out there. Um, but yeah, it's 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 something, it's weird that there's there happen to be four such good or at least successful in some cases, uh, Christmas movies out in, in the same year. Uh, I, I had hoped that this year would be a similar thing, like it happens every 10 years, because 1993, of course, was Nightmare Before Christmas. You know, so it's, it's. I, I feel like there's something in the water in, in years ending in three. What's 2013? Um, 2013, if I'm honest, was not quite such a banner <laughs> year. I mean, there was Madea Christmas. You know what? Let's ignore that best man holiday i'm also going to ignore i'm afraid frozen not a christmas movie it takes place in the summer yeah okay 2013 proves maybe it's wrong. every 20 Fine. years every 20 years but then that removes
0: 93 but maybe and 83 that was 93. great but that does mean think you can get was. 63 and <laughs> oh 43 God. was for-
1: no i'm no. sorry that's not when it's a wonderful life came out no. it was
0: 46 <laughs>
1: damn it Look, we'll work on this. There's probably an equation we can do. But the thing is, there was something in the water in 2003 that suddenly led, like, legitimate stars, legitimate filmmakers, to make Christmas movies, mm. and that's that's a great thing.
2: Can, can, can I can I suggest a very half baked theory as to why?
1: Yes, and please.
2: I wonder if it's actually because of a non-Christmas movie, which is, mm-hmm. or a non-Christmas franchise, Lord of the Rings. So we're reaching, in 2003, Return of the King's out that year. Of course, yeah. But because of those films, Christmas was the time to go to the cinema. The biggest blockbuster of the year had become winter rather than summer necessarily. So they're all thinking, people are going to the cinema anyway, they'll see Return of the King. If they see a second film, let's make mm-hmm. it a Christmas one. Could be. That
1: is, for the, or also maybe, you know... The, the Hollywood stereotype, this is not my stereotype. The Hollywood stereotype is Dad is going to Lord of the Rings. Oh. What's Mum and the kid's gonna go see? And the answer could be elf it could be love actually. Um, probably wasn't bad Santa, at least in Hollywood's theory. But um, that might you might you might be on something there that could absolutely be be an answer because that wouldn't necessarily have been the case for the first two Lord of the Rings films because they wouldn't have had time to realize what big hits these were going to be and how many, how much hype there was going to be around them. Ah, I mean, my only issue with that is you would think they then would have done this for every year of the Harry Potter franchise, apart from the time it came out in the summer.
2: Well, then they realised actually what it was was fantasy, not Christmas. True. (laughs) And then you get your Narnias and all of your other failed attempts to cash in on that.
1: (laughs) Ah, it's a shame it's a shame but anyway listen the main thing is Tokyo Godfathers if you are like me and have never heard of it I'm hoping that by the time people listen to this it may have been added to I don't know
0: maybe BFI Player or Netflix last year it got added to Netflix on the 1st of December and then fantastic so I I wonder if it's the same thing
1: you may, well, you may well be luckier than me and be able to get it on Netflix. And if not, it sounds like we need to start ordering that Blu-ray because uh, I need to hear the dub as well. I'm really interested to see how they do that because a good dub can be a fantastic thing. We should also say that you have done, I mean, I have done episodes on all three of the other movies previously on Bad Hamburg. if people want to go look this up, but you guys have done a full episode of your own on Tokyo Godfathers, right? So people can look that up on the Ghibliotech podcast.
2: Yep, we did a whole mini series on the whole of cons. Career and we called it the chronology to keep the puns going. And actually, if you do get around to watching that new dub, we we had an interview with Shakina Nafak the trans actress that um, uh, voiced Hannah in the G Kids dub nice. that came out. So it's really good to get that sort of perspective, um, on the film such sort of 20 years on, how it has different meanings and resonances, and how they uh they, they they tackled that. And the podcast is still going. We we have all sorts of other mini series looking at the filmmakers. Another Christmas-related movie we did on the podcast was Nightmare Before Christmas because we did um, Henry Selleck was our most recent miniseries that started off with Henry Selleck and then went into Leica Studios afterwards on a nice. stop-motion kick. And um, if we're in plugging mode, we also have a few stocking fillers with Ghibli Tech name on. We have four Absolutely. books now. We're up to four, aren't we, Jake? Um The Ghibli book, which was um, our first book a couple of years ago, which is every Studio Ghibli film, a chapter on every film. I do nerdy background history jake gives his fan review then we have uh, the anime movie guide which is 30 more films from japanese animation going deeper like we have a chapter on satoshi Kon there but we don't pick tokyo godfathers we picked millennium actress instead but that's a chapter about his whole career then more recently, we did a book about Studio Ghibli for kids, which is called The World of Studio Ghibli, which was where we were able to do our sort of uh, darling Kindersley, osborne um, <laughs> type book, like how would that work for Studio Ghibli for kids? And then our most recent book, again, no relationships to Christmas, but it was a left turn for us. We did a book on live action Korean cinema called Film Korea. Again, 30 films offering a sort of accessible say- route into that.
0: No connection to Christmas. There is a film in it called Christmas in August, which is magical. Uh, Break your heart, but go and check it out.
2: Not set at Christmas. Set at Christmas.
0: <laughs> it's got it in the name. That's enough.
2: <laughs> well, it's a, it's a it's I guess it's a reference to Christmas in July as well, which is mm. um they're they're riffing on I suppose, but again not a Christmas movie, but a really heartbreaking movie.
1: <laughs> well, I have, I have to confess I haven't read all four, but I have read your Tech book and it's fantastic. So cannot recommend that highly enough, or all of them highly enough uh, to listeners for for stocking stuffers and everything else. And again, you will be introducing Tokyo Godfathers at the BFI on the IMAX for God's sake. Uh, on December 14th. So if, if anybody is in the neighbourhood and hasn't already bought tickets, highly recommend seeing this on the biggest screen possible um, because it really is a wonderful film. It, I was I was blown away, frankly. So um, yeah, thank you guys for bringing it to my attention.
0: Thank you for having us on the podcast, Helen.
2: A pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Helen.
1: Absolute pleasure. So thanks again to Michael and Jake and see you next time on Bar Humbug. Well, that's it for this episode of Bah Humbug. Please join us next time for more Christmas movies madness. In the meantime, I've been your host, Helen O'Hara. This podcast is edited by Ben Williams and produced by Kobe Omanaka for Stripped Media. And if you've enjoyed the pod, please do rate us with five shiny Christmas stars wherever you listen to your podcasts. But whatever you do, happy holidays!